Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We explore topics that are shaping healthcare with specialists who are leading innovative change. Algorithms are moving out of the lab and into society where they are asked to answer tough questions. Questions such as which tests to order, which patients to treat, or how long to treat patients. These questions cause algorithms to stumble, not so much because they're hard to answer, but sometimes because they're hard to ask. We will discuss the future of algorithms in healthcare. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. And I'm Dr. Katie Bright. We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Joining us today is Dr. Ziad Obermeyer. Dr. Obermeyer is an emergency physician. He is an associate professor of health policy and management at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health, where he does research at the intersection of machine learning, medicine, and health policy. He previously was an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Obermeyer researches the intersection of algorithms and emergency medicine. By focusing on how machine learning can improve diagnoses, Dr. Obermeyer seeks to help doctors make more accurate predictions about patients' conditions and quickly identify optimal treatment. Welcome, Dr. Obermeyer. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. Could you just expand and explain a little bit more about how your research utilizes advanced data sets uh, to generate algorithms that can assist physicians in their work? What we try to do is hone in on one really important decision um, where we can bring data to bear to, to try to help physicians think through that decision better. So a lot of decisions in medicine um, are fundamentally about uh, probabilities. So if I'm working in the emergency department and someone comes in with chest pain, I have to essentially make a prediction on that patient's likelihood of having an acute coronary syndrome. And if that is very, very low, then it's not worth testing that person. Um, and if it's above some threshold, then I need to go ahead and test that person to confirm whether or not there's a blockage. So a lot of the problems that physicians are solving every day in the clinic, in the emergency department, in the OR, are fundamentally about predictions. And that's the kind of problem that algorithms can solve very, very well. Um, and so that's what, we, that's what we try to do. It's interesting. So you're really talking about judgment, you know, uh, the judgment that a human uh, physician uses to take all that information and put it to play. And some would say that judgment and human bias come hand in hand. Uh, how, do, how, how do the research or the research designed algorithms that are based on evidence-based medicine, how do they replicate or eliminate those biases? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think you're absolutely right to equate those two things. Um, you know, there's, in fact, the, this old literature um, on these kinds of uh, decisions, it's called judgment and decision-making. Um, and so, you know, the way I think about it, which is a, a slight oversimplification, um, but, but I think a useful one is that when we can get algorithms to predict the exact thing that we want to predict, so in my data set, if I see among everyone who gets a, a catheterization, who ends up having an acute coronary syndrome, who gets a stent, um, then that prediction is going to be a tool for fighting against the biases and errors that physicians have. Um, one of the things that we find, for example, is that physicians tend to um, over-test people with chest pain conditional on their actual risk, which means that they under-test people with shortness of breath 
um, other symptoms like that. Um, and so we see these biases kind of uh, alive um, in, our, in, our, in our living lab. Um, and, and we can actually use algorithms to diagnose those errors and start to fight against them. Um, now, the, the problems arise, though, when algorithms start to replicate the biases that exist in our data rather than fight against them. And so in a lot of my other work, um, I, I look at situations where algorithms are asked the wrong question. And so, for example, like one thing we published on a year ago was an algorithm that's used to help make a bunch of decisions in population health management, like the, who are the kinds of patients that are going to deteriorate who need help now. The way that algorithm and a bunch of other algorithms like it work is they predict how much that patient is going to cost next year as a proxy for how much healthcare they need. But unfortunately, using that bad proxy cost as a proxy for need actually builds in all of the structural biases in our health data because when you know, some people, when they get sick, they can't afford to go to the doctor. They never generate costs. And so the algorithm sees that and under predicts their health needs relative to their, um, to their, to their uh, cost. So it really all depends and, and all hinges on um, having algorithms answer the right questions, having them predict the right variables. If that variable is right, it's going to fight against bias. And if that variable is wrong, it can reinforce and even scale those biases up. As a trainee uh, uh, and mentor of mine said, the absence of evidence is not proof of absence. And that's really what you're talking about. It's like we can only use data that we have to generate algorithms and do predictions. But if we don't have the data, you can't have the algorithm. To Johnny's point, if we don't have the, the good data, because that's always been my, what you're talking about is exactly my concern with a lot of the AI and machine learning. And you described it really well in one of your articles. It's almost like a residency going through training. It's going to be learning, but we want to make sure it's learning the, the correct evidence-based information, not the wrong. Um, and, and I think you just spoke to that as well with your answer. So thank you for that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, the, the issues can be really subtle. And so, for example, like, you know, when we don't see someone show up in um, a cancer registry or a clinic, um, it's very tempting to consider that a zero. Like, missing mm -hmm. is often just zero. Mm -hmm. But that's not a trivial assumption to make, especially because um, different people can be missing for different reasons. So if, um, if I see, for example, someone in the emergency department and I send them out with a diagnosis of acid reflux um, and they never come back, well, that can be good or it can be really bad. Um, and, and I don't wanna make the mistake of, of you know, assuming for myself in my own clinical practice or training an algorithm that if someone doesn't come back uh, when I sent them home with a benign diagnosis, that's a great outcome. Yeah, it's extending on that. If you're using the wrong databases, you may also have that issue. So sometimes in the case that you're talking about where a patient doesn't come back, if you were to check the, uh, the death records or mortuary records, you could figure out where that patient went and that could help to, to push forward as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. My, um, my first research project uh, out of residency was actually doing that linkage work to link emergency department records to social security uh, records to see exactly those cases. Um, because one of my great fears in residency was, um, you know, I was one of those people who didn't like to admit people to the hospital, didn't like to do a lot of tests. Um, and, and my greatest fear was that that impulse was leading me to send people home 
not erroneously, who belonged in the hospital. And so um, those kinds of linkages, I think, are really critical. And they're also just hard to do, um, uh, admin, not, not kind of uh, in terms of writing the code to do them, but in terms of just getting all of the permissions you need to link these data together. And I think that's really too bad um, because those data are tremendously valuable when put together and a lot less valuable when they're siloed apart. I'm so glad you raised that last point because what goes through my head is uh, the people that fear IoT, the Internet of Things and all the data and how much we have, uh, and you just articulated quite nicely, how hard it is to link, for example, your driving record to your college grades or something to that effect. It takes significant uh, legal effort to get the data and then even more to link them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's, you're right. I think everyone's mind uh, leaps towards um, dystopian things. You know, I think, I think that when you hear that um, your refrigerator is going to know, um, you know, what you're eating and when, you can think of a lot of really bad things that, that might happen then. And for some reason, I think our, our mind just leaps to the really bad things. Maybe we watch too much bad science fiction. Maybe science fiction is actually like, it has a, a pessimistic bias these days, which it didn't used to have. Um, but either way, our mind leaps to all the bad things and, and we don't think about all the good things. So we think a lot about um, how bad it would be to have privacy breaches of data that we've, that we've linked, um, but nobody is, is weighing that against the enormous benefits that we would get from um, the understanding that would come out of linking those data sets. Um, all of our institutions are oriented towards risk minimization and nobody actually has their eye on the ball of like, yes, but that's the trade-off and there are huge benefits to linking these data too. I think you alluded a little to the, the benefits of, you know, cost effectiveness and high quality and we can, we can find a way to have, have both when we're practicing medicine. I was thinking when you mentioned everyone kind of jumps towards the worst and oh my gosh, is this, is this going to, you, you also wrote about um, three main key points and one was um, sort of improving prognosis. And then the second one, which I wanted to focus on a little bit was sort of this, this concept of displacing, um, you know, physicians in some ways, but I, you know, I think that's one of the things that people talk about with machine learning and, and AI. And the other thing, which was also pretty cool is the idea of improved diagnostic accuracy. Can you focus on the second point just a little bit so that, um, our listeners could understand a little bit more about what you mean by the displacing and, and the, the, positive, the positive piece of that as well. Yeah, I think you know, you're totally right to, to make the analogy. I think when people think about technologies that can do the work of a doctor, everyone thinks about losing their job as a doctor. Um, and historically, that, that's not at all how these technologies work. I think historians of technology talk about the fact that really only one job has ever truly been automated, and that's the job of the elevator operator that used to sit uh, in, in the elevator and, and push you know, the lever um, instead of having you push a button. Um, what's much more typical is the story with um, uh, bank tellers or construction workers. So if you look at the number of bank tellers over time, uh, and specifically before and after the ATM was introduced, you might have thought like, oh, the ATM is going to replace a lot of bank tellers. Um, in fact, by taking a bunch of the annoying, boring work that a bank teller was doing, counting bills, it actually let that bank teller refocus on different parts of their job that were more people intensive. So, you know, uh, telling people about mortgages, um, helping them open different accounts. So actually the number of bank tellers has grown. Similarly, construction workers have not 
been displaced by uh, bulldozers and, and jackhammers and things like that, um, construction workers are just far more productive. So I think we'll see very similar things um, in medicine. Um, one of the papers that, that we um, worked on was, was actually looking at a way to have algorithms essentially do triage of images. So instead of trying to just train an algorithm to um, replace what the radiologist or the ophthalmologist or, or whoever is looking at an image would say about the image, we insert a step where first the algorithm basically says, this is an easy case or this is a hard case. Um, we can really uh, productively automate a bunch of those easy cases. And these are the cases that disproportionately radiologists don't like. I mean, nobody likes reading a million uh, of the normal chest x-rays that I order from the ER. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and we would love to get rid of those and, and have those radiologists really focus on the harder cases where there's ambiguity, there's genuine uncertainty. Um, so I think that's, that's the future. It's, it's automating specific tasks, um, mm -hmm. helping doctors do triage, be more efficient, not putting doctors out of work. And I think in a primary care role, it's more, you know, if something can help me with all those click boxes and things that take my time away from my patient, then my 15 minute encounter is more meaningful because I'm really spending that one-on-one -on -one time uh, with, my, with my patient. So just more of a meaningful Absolutely. relationship too. So, you know, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing your insights so far, Dr. Obermeyer. We're gonna have to take a short break, but we will continue this exciting discussion in just a moment. The Reimagine Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital and the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affair Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and Associate Dean of Clinical and Competency-Based Education at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. She is a family physician practicing at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Welcome back to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We're still talking with Dr. Ziad Obermeyer, and we're talking about how data are used to develop algorithms to not only accelerate healthcare and medicine, but also to get a deeper understanding. And as we get a deeper understanding, there's no specific answer to uh, a general question when it comes to an algorithm. The algorithms are actually really good at being personal and being able to, to drill down and dissect down to the individual patient. And my concern is that so much of our healthcare data are based on a biased slice of the population. Um, if we go with clinical trials, it's all those individuals who have elected to enroll in those clinical trials. If we go with a distribution across the country, it's those typically academic research centers. So we're not involving our rural patients or even those who are from indigenous tribes. And so Ziad, how do we conceptualize the inclusion of our um, broad and diverse population in the United States and across the world when it comes to developing these algorithms? I'm glad you brought it up because I, I do think it's a really critical question. I think that it, um, it affects all of the data that we use to, to train algorithms. And so we only get to see the people who have access to the healthcare system to begin with. Um, it, it even affects really the, the way in which all of our scientific knowledge um, is developed. So I have this project where we look at the causes of uh, knee pain. And one of the things that we find is that the, um, the way that we've learned about arthritis in the knee 
is incredibly shaped by the way that the knees of coal miners in Lancashire, England looked in the 1950s because that was where the original studies were done. And so what, one of the things that we do is we um, train an algorithm to look at the knees of patients today and identify knees that look painful to the algorithm by using patient reported outcomes. And just by doing that, by training the algorithm to find painful knees, not knees that radiologists look bad, we can actually disproportionately explain the pain that non-white patients um, uh, experience. Um, because the data that we use to quote unquote train our understanding of arthritis of the knee comes from a predominantly um, white population. So I think these issues are, you know, they're issues with, clin with clinical trials, as you mentioned, they're issues with algorithms as we're increasingly learning. Um, and I think the reason that they're so um, hard to solve is because if you look at where data are available, um, where data are easy for researchers to access. They are disproportionately academic medical centers um, that have big research operations and that tend um, you know, uh, not to serve um, the kinds of patients that we really need to get into these data sets the most. Um, and so a lot of my work now, including work in a, in a nonprofit that I co-founded is really trying to um, get philanthropic resources into more underserved places, county health systems, um, uh, hospitals in, in poor areas to make investments in data infrastructure and get those data open um, to researchers. I think, you know, we think a lot about disparities in healthcare, but there are huge disparities in data. And that means that we don't build algorithms that serve the needs of these populations. Extending on that, what's the time frame? You know, you let's say you start collecting data. How long before it shows up at your desk? You know, in a farm to table type of atmosphere, we like to know that it's a short period of time from farm to table. But from rural <laughs> to your uh, data sheets, how long do we have? It's great. I also like the uh, the extension of that, which is that you know we need all the data, like snap to tail uh, yeah. data. Um, so I think one of the nice things is that. Um, we don't have to do this prospectively. So by making investments in data infrastructure, not only do we build for the future, we also capture all the data that are stored in the past. And so what we're finding is that with not very big investments in the data infrastructure um, to modernize, for example, where ECGs are stored, where x-rays are stored, we get this huge treasure trove extending back in time um, that we can mine. And, and so I think that you know, the, the payoff is huge. It's not like in prospective studies where you've got to, you know, wait 10 years to see what your 10 year um, cardiovascular disease risk is. It's like, we, we can see 10 years back um, and, and use all of those insights to train algorithms today. So that, that's why I think it's such a compelling um, place for investment. Yeah, so you, you and your team are data archeologists or data pirates. You're going searching for yeah. these ever trails <laughs> of data. Um, before we move on to different topics, um, just spend a moment talking about whether or not an algorithm is fixed in space and time. And so what I mean by that is uh, I always am amazed when we go back and say, what is the average height of a male individual in the age of 30 in the United States? Well, it's probably based on a lookup table from 1910, you know, and so everybody today or most people may be above average. So how modifiable or how much dy dynamics are there in these algorithms? Yeah, I think quite a bit. And I think that's why it's important to build for that change when you're building an algorithm. So you cannot have an algorithm be a static thing that is, you know, I liked your way of putting it, that's fixed in time and place. Um, that has to be generalizable. 
And it has to, you know, we are very live to the idea that these things have to generalize across sites. So I don't want an algorithm that's just been trained at one hospital. I want some guarantee. But, you know, um, uh, because of the way the space-time continuum works, uh, we would also want those guarantees across time uh, as well as space. And so being able to both train the algorithm using past data and present data and build that in a way that adapts and learns for the future, I think is really critical. Thank you. It's so interesting. I feel like I could just talk about this all night. One more question I wanted to ask you just about sort of medical school curriculum. And, you know, I feel like sometimes our students are super tech savvy and we want to make sure as faculty that we're preparing them for the reality of what medicine looks like when they graduate. Uh, so things like telemedicine, you know, kind of staying ahead of the curve to make sure they're ready. And this is an excellent example. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on how machine learning may impact how we're training our future physicians and also how can we best make sure that we have adequate curriculum uh, to get them ready for these exciting new advances and, and where we're at in medicine. I think one of the reasons that it's so exciting to be working in this um, in this field that that I think everyone on some level knows is the future of medicine is because um, physicians with their clinical training can make such a big contribution to this field. Um, so I think that you know when you think about what is the diagnosis? What, what does that mean? Like, what do we, what kind of algorithms do we need in the healthcare system? These are all questions that a computer scientist um, or a statistician working alone is not going to be able to answer. Um, it needs that kind of input from the clinical world. Um, and so that's very exciting. But on, on, the, on the less optimistic side, I don't think we're currently selecting or preparing um, clinicians for that future. I think that our um, pre-medical requirements are stuck in an era like from a hundred years ago. Um, I think the, the nothing about the way we choose who gets into medical school or the way we train people in medical school is preparing people for this future. I think it's very possible to graduate from medical school basically innumerate and unable to critically evaluate these algorithms that are going to be, even if you're not designing them, a huge part of, of the future of what a clinician's life is going to look like. And I think that's really dangerous. Um, and, I, and I think that the medical schools that recognize this first are going to be the ones that shape that future. Yeah, totally agree. I've had conversations with our scholarly project program, which is where our master's, our medical students engage in like a master's type program, and it's meant to do be research. And most people's thought of research is wearing a white coat standing in front of a bench with a pipette. But I keep telling them, no, it's getting access to a table of data and trying to figure out what hidden secrets are buried in there. And Absolutely. What, what uh, risks are in there? You know, what, what's not there that's going to uh, make a decision or, or have an outcome that's going to negatively impact our thought process on health and medicine? And so this has been phenomenal. It's been a Absolutely. great conversation. I, I think... I think we know that medicine is a biological science and that's why all the pipettes come out, but medicine is also a, an information science and data science and we're blind to that side of, of the science that's gonna take a, an enormous role in the future. Yeah. And it might be your enthusiasm and yours too, Johnny, just talking about the, to realize you can impact so many through, the, through just thinking outside of the traditional bench research and, and, and how many lives you can impact by opening your mind to, to this. Yeah. Just as a, as a closing thought before Katie takes us out, um, 
when our students are thinking about this type of research, what is the time from starting a project to, to publishing it? Let's just say a faculty member has a, a set of tables or data. Like, are we talking two weeks for analysis, two weeks for writing, and then send it off for publication? Or is it the traditional like 15 years to get something published? When I think about my own projects, I think that it's very rare that a data set exists that is ready to go. Um, and so I, all of the lags that come into my own production of research have to do with getting the data to begin with. And I think that that is really hard to separate from the question itself because, you know, all of our data are exhaust from some other part of the medical system. It's awesome. billing, it's, you know, uh, routine clinical care and and it's it's of a level of complexity and 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 um dirtiness that i think is just it means that you need to make huge investments in actually getting the data and so that's the part that in my experience can take years and years to, to negotiate access to and that's exactly the the part that i'm working hardest to try to break down now thank you so much it's one of those difficult times because we always just want to keep going and going and can talk and can talk forever. But unfortunately, our time is up. So thank you, Dr. Obermeyer, so much for sharing your work with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thanks. Thank it's you. been so much fun for me. Thanks for having me. Well, Katie, we've had the uh, great pleasure of having a wonderful guest. What I really like is as we go back and we listen to this podcast, there are so many nuggets of information. Uh, and the one that really caught my attention was data are exhaust. Data are essentially a waste product of delivering care. And as we um, collect and mine all those data that are coming up and the ones in the past, we can ask the most phenomenal questions uh, that allow us to really see um, different slices of the population, knowing that each patient is going to fit into multiple slices and therefore empower our physicians and our other healthcare providers to deliver the best care based on evidence. And that's really what we want to get to is evidence-based medicine. Absolutely. And how to have that evidence to be able to improve our quality care. Uh, and also its impact on cost effectiveness too, because we're really going to be kind of be individualizing based on data and evidence. What each of our patients needs within our population is awesome. And I loved talking about that intersection, that, that how we as physicians, we have this personal relationship with our patients. A lot of times it's a longitudinal relationship. We have that trust. And so how can we bring that data, like you said, this really important evidence-based data to the bedside in a way that makes sense to them and utilizing these relationships to deliver in a sense where, you know, even if it's something surprising, we're in it together and this is what we know and let's, let's move on from here to try to see how to best um, make you as healthy as we can and you do some preventive medicine and maybe prevent this, uh, perhaps you were, predicted to be high risk for cardiovascular disease, but how can we work together, you know, primary prevention wise to minimize those risks in your future? So I thought it was just so interesting to talk about that intersection. And I like the way you brought up the idea of the relationship between the provider and the patient. At one point, we're all going to be patients and many of us are providers as well. That being said, um, we know that it's no longer a one-sided relationship. Our patients are bringing new information and new data, and we have to be able to have that conversation with our provider and with our patients. And so uh, one of those takeaway elements was to um, recognize if 
in numeracy exists in our physician uh, or our physician trainees and teach numeracy, meaning do you understand the numbers? How do you explain those numbers? Recognizing that some patients have less aptitude for numbers and graphs and being able to translate that is going to be an important part of medical training and healthcare delivery. Yeah, and I hope that if there's any uh, young physicians, training physicians, young scientists that uh, were, were listening, they might be excited about this because I thought to myself, man, this is a really important way where you could really impact lots and lots of lives and make a difference. So from a research standpoint, it was exciting as well. A biological career doesn't mean that you have to be at the bedside uh, or at the bench side working with pipettes. You can be at a computer working with data and that data, um, the data tell all and will inform us how to, how to allocate resources, how to teach, how to, how to inform and how to improve the health and welfare of ourselves and others. All very exciting. Katie, as we were talking with Dr. Obermeyer, I was thinking about all the projects that I have going on with the data that I have and going to uh, use his enthusiasm knowing that the work that we do with existing data can not only help us to deliver care today, but actually identify missing data elements. And I'm going to keep an eye out on all those aspects of the data we have that uh, exclude certain individuals, that exclude certain conditions, and then work to promote that we get more, more deeper, richer data to be able to answer these questions. And, and Johnny, I was inspired as well to just really open, open up my uh, mind to this and see what algorithms are out there. What can I be using even now in my practice to make sure that we're really um, using our, our data to help us manage our populations as effectively and um, as high quality as we can in an evidence-based way. So I'm certainly inspired as well. Um, again, we can keep talking, but we're out of time. So tune in next time when we explore building age-friendly healthcare systems on the Reimagine Medicine podcast. Lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. Bright out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagine Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CC BYSA 4.0 license. <laughs>